A mother's love is supposed to be unconditional. Sometimes it can also be deadly. What would drive a mother to kill her own child? Darlie Routier is sitting on death row for the 1996 murder of two of her sons. But is it possible she didn't do it? Diane Downs was convicted 35 years ago of shooting her three children in one of the most notorious murder cases in Oregon history. And 20 years ago, Andrea Yates drowned her five children in the bathtub one by one. Not all moms are perfect. Sometimes they're just plain evil. Today, we want to tell you about three women who turned their children into their victims, starting with the hysterical 911 call Darlie Routier made at 2.31 in the morning on June 6, 1996. Uh, 232. That was the first minute of a five-minute call, and I know it's really hard to understand her, so bear with me so I can give you a quick overview of the whole call, because according to FBI analyst Susan Adams, the order she said things and what she actually said versus how she was saying it is a big reason why she's sitting on death row today. Darlise starts off with, somebody came here, they broke in, then she says, they just stabbed me and my children. Then says it again, they just stabbed me and my kids, my little boys. Then the operator is about to ask who did it, but Darlie cuts her off to say, my little boy is dying. She goes on like that for another minute or so, and then her husband Darren apparently comes downstairs. He was upstairs sleeping with their youngest baby boy, Drake. When she saw Darren, the first thing she says is, I saw them, Darren. There's some back and forth with the operator, and then the next thing you hear is Darlie saying again, Darren, I don't know who it was. We got to find out who it was. There's more screaming, and it's hard to make out, but the next understandable thing she says is, somebody came in while I was sleeping. Me and my little boys were sleeping downstairs. Then her language shifts from somebody to some man came in, stabbed my babies, stabbed me. I woke up. I was fighting. He ran out through the garage, threw the knife down. My babies are dying. They're dead. Oh, my God. The officers got to the house while she was still on with the operator. That's when she says, his knife was laying over there and I already picked it up. God, I bet if we could have gotten the prints, maybe, maybe. Then again, she tells her husband, somebody who did it intentionally walked in here and did it, Darren. And then there's some back and forth with the operator before disconnecting so the police could take over. Okay, so here's what one FBI analyst got from that. The order Darlie said those statements in is critical. Think of it this way. You, 
a completely innocent person are asleep on the couch with your five and six-year-old sons when a strange man breaks in and stabs all three of you, which is what Darlie said happened. Your 911 call might start like this. Help, my kids are bleeding. They've been stabbed. Please help. Then you might ask what you could do to stop their bleeding and help them. But Darlie started her call by establishing that somebody broke in and stabbed her and her kids. Then there's the statement she made to her husband. Someone came in. We have to find them. Sounds like she's trying to convince him someone else was involved. And then you heard the switch from somebody did it to they did it to he did it. The analysis also pointed out that most innocent people don't want to believe their loved ones are dying, but Darlie keeps saying her babies are dying instead of saying they're bleeding or can't move or breathe. So that's one agent's analysis of the call. It could mean everything or it could mean nothing. Here's how the case unfolded. It was a Thursday night in June 1996 in Roulette, an upscale suburb east of Dallas. The Routier brothers, Devin and Damon, wanted to have a slumber party downstairs, so Darlie slept down there with them. In her first version of events, she claims Damon was calling Mommy Mommy, and that woke her up. The room was dark, so she couldn't see him or his brother, but she did see a man wearing a baseball hat run through the kitchen into the garage. She panicked and followed him, which is when she saw the knife. She says she picked it up and put it on the counter, then started screaming for Darren, her husband at the time. At that point, she saw the kids were not all right. Devin wasn't moving. It was later discovered that he'd been stabbed twice in the chest so hard the knife almost pierced the floor. Damon was barely alive. He was stabbed more than six times in the back. Darren was doing CPR on Devin. She was on the phone with 911. As for her wounds, there were two cuts on her right forearm, one in her left shoulder, and massive bruises up and down her arms. Doctors say those bruises came after she left the hospital and she made them herself with a blunt instrument so the cops would think they came from the murderous stranger. But the weirdest thing about her injuries is her slashed throat. Two millimeters deeper and doctors say her cardioid artery would have been cut and she would have bled to death. It's hard to believe she could do that to herself, even harder to believe she could carry on with 911 with such a serious wound. But that's what they say. The only evidence of a possible break-in was a slashed screen in a garage window. Theoretically, an intruder stepped through it, came into the house, grabbed a butcher knife from the kitchen, and stabbed them. But the dust on the windowsill wasn't disturbed. Nothing was taken from the house. And why wouldn't the boys screaming wake Darlie up? According to an investigative article on this case in Texas Monthly, Darlie was a light sleeper. She'd been on the couch for a week because her baby boy's fidgeting was keeping her awake. And how do you sleep through someone slashing your arms and throat only to wake up when your child is yelling for mommy? And for that matter, how did Darren sleep through it upstairs? There's so many things that don't make sense in this story. For example, one of Darren's socks was found in a back alley about the length of a football field away from the house. It had two drops of blood on it, one from each of the boys. Who dropped it there and why? The prosecutor's theory was that the sock was part of the elaborate setup. They figured she stabbed the boys, ran the sock out, came back, slashed the screen in the garage, cut herself in the kitchen, then called 911 and yelled for Darren. Police were on the scene three minutes later, and paramedics got there within four minutes. Devin was already gone, but Damon was still breathing, although he died shortly after. 
The thing is, a doctor testified that based on his injuries, he could only have been alive for nine minutes after he was stabbed. That timing is important when you think about the prosecution's theory. She'd have to be moving pretty fast to get everything done in time. So maybe it's bunk. And she didn't do it. Except they found blood evidence in the kitchen sink to back up their theory. It even looked like someone wiped blood off the counter. There was also blood on the floor, but underneath some broken glass and other items. What's the significance of that? It would mean that the blood was there first and someone, Darlie presumably, dropped the glass and stuff on top of it to stage a crime scene. Her lawyers say there was a bloody fingerprint on a glass table. That fingerprint doesn't match anyone in the family or the emergency responders. But then again, the only DNA on the knife that matched Devin's injuries was from Darlie and Devin. They never found the knife used to stab Damon, which is also strange. They did find a couple of drops of blood on the hoodie Darlie was wearing that night, but they were on the back of it. So how did they get there? Forensic specialists say the only way would have been if the blood was dripping off the knife when she raised it over her head before stabbing the boys again. And there wasn't any blood on the couch where she would have been sleeping when her throat was slashed. Speaking of knives, they found a bread knife with a fiber on it that matched the screen in the garage. So that's it then. She cut it herself, right? Well, maybe. But who's to say someone else in the house didn't cut it? Darren could have slashed the screen, maybe for reasons other than murder. Darren owned a company that tested electronic components. According to Texas Monthly in 1995, he was bringing home about $125,000. But by 1996, the money was drying up. And when the kids were murdered, the family was $22,000 in debt and a month late on their mortgage. Although, no one around them would have known it. They were spending money the way they always had, with abandon. Something had to give, and Darren had an idea to make some money. According to a private investigator working for Darlie's defense team, as quoted in Texas Monthly, after she was sentenced to death row, Darren gave an affidavit saying he had floated the idea of staging a fake burglary to collect on the insurance money. He even asked Darlie's stepfather if he knew anyone who might be willing to break into the family's house, take the stuff, and then get a cut of the insurance payout. When the reporter, Skip Hollinsworth, asked him about it, he admitted that he might have talked about it with other people, although he denies he ever went through with it. Money is always a good motivation for murder, and in this case, prosecutors jumped on the couple's financial issues to try and explain why Darlene, a woman with no prior history of domestic abuse, criminal behavior, or mental illness, would or could commit such a horrific crime. This was a woman everyone loved. Her house was the fun house. The neighbor kids clamored to play there. She brought the good snacks to the school events. You know the type. Stabbing her sons out of the blue was so far out of character. Her name and the crime she was convicted of should have never been in the same sentence. Or at least that's the persona she put out there. Inside, there might have been more going on. About a month before the murders, Darlie wrote what sounded like a suicide note in her diary. I hope that one day you will forgive me for what I'm about to do. My life has been such a hard fight for a long time, and I just cannot find the strength to keep fighting anymore. I love you three more than anything else in this world. I don't want you to see a miserable person every time you look at me. Your dad loves you all very much, and I know in my heart he will take care of my babies. But she said she snapped out of it and never considered taking her life before or since. Was she lying? 
Were the boy's deaths meant to be part of a murder-suicide plan, but when it came to slashing her own throat, she couldn't go through with it? Then there was the party she hosted at Devin's graveside to celebrate his seventh birthday a week after he was murdered. The family brought balloons and silly string to decorate his headstone. What they didn't know was that the police had set up surveillance at the graveside to try and catch a confession on tape. What they got was something better in the eyes of the prosecution. The jury saw her literally dancing and laughing on her son's grave. Apparently, they watched it seven times. It was probably a big part of her guilty conviction. But her defense pointed out that she had been crying just hours earlier at a more serious memorial the family put on first. But if that footage did exist, the jury didn't see it. Maybe she really is innocent. But if that's true, then why couldn't she seem to land on one believable story? I told you her first written confession had Damon waking her up by yelling mommy, but then later she said she woke up on the couch when her throat was being slashed, which would make a little more sense, but still later she said she struggled with the attacker in the kitchen. None of her stories explained how she slept through the attack on her children if she wasn't the one holding the knife. How many sleeping pills would it take to stay unconscious while your children were being brutally stabbed? The police thought it was pretty unbelievable, too. She was arrested less than two weeks after the murders, and eight months later, she was on death row. Assuming the jury got it right, there's still the question of why. The closest the prosecution could come to a motive was the family's money problems, but the boy's life insurance only paid out ten grand. The cost of the funerals was more than that. Darren, on the other hand, had an $800,000 life insurance policy. If she was hoping to cash in, why not kill her husband and invent a fake intruder story? And if the motive was something closer to motherhood burnout, then why stop with her two oldest boys and not kill the baby too? And the same holds true if we switch Darren out for Darlie. What would his motive have been to kill his sons and try and fail to kill his wife? Surely she would have recognized her own husband. And again, there's the question of money. Why not just kill her and collect her insurance? But did Darren know more than he was saying? He failed a polygraph when asked four key questions. Was he involved in any way? Did he do it? Did he know how the sock got into the alley? And did he know who did it? So what gives? Well, he says he was already upset by the time they got to those crucial questions, so it skewed the test. And if it measures guilt, he acknowledges he felt guilty, but not because he committed any crime. It was because he was the one to survive it. And interestingly, the results of Darlie's polygraph were never made public. We may never know if Darlie really did it or not. Today, she's still on death row in Texas maintaining her innocence. She and Darren divorced in 2011, although he also still publicly says he believes she didn't do it, as do the rest of her family, including her surviving son. But what do you think? Let us know in the comments. Do you want to hear something crazy? Listen to Diane Downs talking to the parole board in 2010. My kids and I were sitting at home watching TV. We were watching Helen Keller, the Helen Keller story. I received a phone call from someone who said that he wanted me to come pick up some photographs for my boyfriend. Not of my boyfriend, but for my boyfriend, Rick. Rick is a guy that I'd been dating for about six weeks, and he claimed to be an FBI agent. Whether or not he was, I don't know. I certainly never called him at work or showed up or made him prove it or show a badge. It didn't matter to me. I wasn't, <laughs> to me it was just all, it was just dating. 
but I received a phone call about 9.15 from someone who said I needed to come pick some photographs up for Rick. I piled the kids in the car. We went out to go meet this person to pick up the photographs. I stopped by Heather... Wow, I can't remember Heather's last name now. I stopped by Heather's house because I'd been, I told Heather on the phone a few days earlier that I had a newspaper ad for her. So she had been wanting to buy a horse, and this was a newspaper ad that would allow her to adopt a horse. So I had told her that I had a, that I had a newspaper clipping for her that I'd found at work. So as long as we were going out to meet this guy to pick up photographs, we went by Heather's house. Heather said, I already got a horse just the other day. So we went to see the horse. We got back in the car. We left. I went to meet this guy. Somebody in the road flagged us down. I stopped and got out of, the, got out of my car. And he said something to the effect of, I want your car. And I laughed at him. And I said, you've got to be kidding. Because in my mind, those kinds of things don't happen. In Arizona, those things don't happen. I don't know about Oregon, but in Arizona, those things don't happen. And so he jumped into the car, leaned into the car, and started firing the weapon. And it happened so quickly that by the time he stood up and faced me, it was over. I mean, it was just that fast. I, he said something about the car again, and I struggled with him. The gun discharged. He fell back. I jumped in the car, put the keys in the ignition, and took off. The car door shut by itself. That's it. And I went to the hospital. Christy and, Dan, uh, Christy and Danny were in the back seat. When we got to the hospital, they were still crying. Um, the nurses reported that they were still crying. The state says I that... I was the one that shot them and that I wanted them dead. If that was the case, I would not have taken to the hospital still crying. There are so many other ways to accomplish such a horrific deed if I was going to do it. I'm certainly bright enough to figure out another way besides some way that looks so absolutely insane and hokey that nobody would believe it. I'm not dumb. Well, she's right about one thing. She's not dumb. She's evil. And that story you just heard, that was only the latest version of a story she's been trying to spin for 38 years. But did you catch what she didn't say? She never said, I didn't do it because I loved my children. That's because it's all about Diane. Take it from the lead investigator. Diane is the kind of woman who could murder you, then have lunch next to your dead body. On the night in question, May 19th, 1983. Diane drove her three small kids out to a lonely country road, supposedly sightseeing, even though it was almost 10 o'clock at night. When she got to an isolated spot, she pulled the car to the side of the road, got her gun out of the trunk, returned to the driver's seat, turned around and shot them multiple times. Her youngest daughter, seven-year-old Cheryl, died instantly. Her older girl, eight-year-old Christy, was shot twice in the chest, and her son, Three-year-old Danny was sleeping, and he was shot in the back. And to make it look like she was also a victim, Diane shot herself in the left forearm. But she took the time to wrap a towel around it on her way to the emergency room in Springfield, Oregon. Meanwhile, in the back seat, her children were minutes away from death. 
she did nothing to try and stop their bleeding. That's because the kids weren't supposed to live. She did her best to make sure they didn't make it to the hospital alive. Witnesses spotted her on the way to the hospital driving very slowly, no more than five to seven miles an hour. And when she finally made it there, hospital staff said she was more worried about her arm than her children. And when they pulled through, well, no one was more surprised than Diane, but she had a story ready to go. It was a little different from the version you just heard her tell. In her original story, she said a strange man with bushy hair stepped out from some bushes on the side of the road and motioned for her to pull over. So she did. (laughs) Okay, so red flag number one, why would any woman alone at night stop for a strange man on the side of an isolated road, especially with three little kids in the car? And then she claimed she got out of the car and asked him what the problem was. And he told her, I want your car. To which she said, you've got to be kidding. From there, she he was not kidding. From there, she claims he tried to take the car keys. And when she wouldn't give them up, he shot her and the kids. That's that's her first story. Well, fortunately, police took steps to make sure that she was kept away from her surviving kids from almost the very first day they were admitted to the hospital. But as I said, this case is so bizarre that it took them a while to gather the facts that they needed to take her down. In fact, it took nine months to be exact. So first they asked her to reenact what happened. And Diane was happy to be the center of attention. So just a few days after one child was brutally murdered and her other two kids were clinging to life, Diane was smiling, laughing, and flirting while she acted out this supposed fatal carjacking for the police. She even fixed her hair in the rear view before getting started. And when she pretended to push the attacker away and get back in the car, she accidentally hit her wounded arm on the door frame and... You know, it hurt a lot. But before she stopped herself, she said, this is worse than, Uh, yeah, finish that sentence, Diane. Was she about to say, this is worse than when I shot myself? The cops knew something was fishy from the beginning, and it wasn't just her version of events that was off. It was her. Not only was she bizarre, emotionally flat, flirty, But the things she was saying were chilling. You have to hear what she said to the surgeon that saved Christie's life. He shared this conversation with ABC. When he gave Diane a status report, she said things like, boy, this has really spoiled my vacation and that really ruined my new car. I got blood all over the back of it. And as bad as that sounds, it got worse. It took that doctor exactly 30 minutes to know she was the one who did it. She told him she knew Christy was brain dead and she wanted him to, quote, pull the plug. Well, not only did he, you know, not do that, but he actually got a judge to make him and another doctor Christy's guardians so that they could ignore Diane and treat her the way that they needed to. Miraculously, those doctors were able to save both Christy and Danny, but neither of them walked away without permanent injuries. Danny was paralyzed from the waist down. He never walked again. Christy suffered a stroke that affected her speech for the rest of her life, and at first, she couldn't talk at all, which is why she couldn't tell police her mother was the shooter right away. Well, that is to say, she couldn't say it in words, but they noticed that every time Diane came into her room, Christy's vitals went way up. Her pulse quickened. It was clearly she was afraid. 
It took months of physical therapy and counseling, but at Diane's trial in January 1984, Christy told the judge and jury that her mom was the one who shot them. And it wasn't just her daughter's statement that got her convicted. Diane's nonstop talking helped get her put away too. After the shootings, she gave a lot of interviews and the things she said were so bizarre, it became clear something was very wrong with her. For example, she told one reporter that when people said she was lucky, meaning lucky all three of her kids weren't murdered, she said she didn't feel very lucky because the bullet wound in her arm stopped her from being able to tie her own shoes for two months. That's not what they meant, Anne. And when she started to notice that no one believed her story, she changed it again and again. So one scenario involved two men in ski masks. Another claimed her ex-husband Steve hired a hitman to kill them. And yet another version involved that bushy-haired stranger, but this time he wasn't a stranger. He was a drug dealer who she actually knew. This is crazy. She said he went by the nickname Animal, although his real name was Jim Haynes. At first, she had no idea that that was who it was, but then she remembered. And here's the kicker. She claimed the former district attorney put him up to it. Okay. But it gets stranger. Another man actually gave a sworn affidavit in 1998, backing up her story. Sort of. I mean, he didn't mention the DA or any of the other conspiracy theories, but he did say Jim shot her kids to teach Diane a lesson about minding her own business after she walked in on some transactions she wasn't supposed to see. This guy said she'd already been warned once, but she still called Jim to meet up with him on that country road to buy drugs, which which is where he shot her. It's crazy. While Diane was busy talking herself into prison through the media, the police were searching for evidence that they could bring to trial. So at the crime scene, they found casings from 22 caliber bullets, but no gun. Her ex-husband and her ex-boyfriend, yeah, we're going to get there, they said she did have a 22, and there was also blood and gunpowder evidence. Blood spatter in the car was everywhere, but not on Diane, and there was no gunpowder on the driver's door, like there should have been if this bushy-haired stranger leaned in and fired like she said he did. So who is this woman? Where does she come from? Diane. She was born Elizabeth Diane Fredrickson in Phoenix, Arizona. Her parents were strict Baptists. After she graduated high school, she spent one year in Bible college, but she was kicked out for sleeping around and generally behaving not very Bible college-y. At 18, she married her high school sweetheart, Steve Downs, and she got pregnant with Cheryl and Christy right away. Her son, Danny, was the result of an affair. That wasn't a one-off for Diane. She claimed she only, only, slept with 10 other men in two years. So what's the big deal? Well, it was no big deal for her. Half of them, she said, weren't even married. Oh, Yeah, I mean, sleeping with 10 men in two years isn't a big deal, but it is if you're already supposed to be sleeping with just one man, Diane. But okay, it's no surprise that her own marriage imploded in 1980. So Diane was on the prowl as a free woman. And you know what she figured out? Pregnant women get attention and she loved it. In addition to her first three kids, she had another baby as a surrogate and collected about $10,000 for that. According to crime writer Melissa Moore, an episode of Donahue gave Diane the idea. And then 
Shockingly, but also not shockingly, during the nine months between the shootings and her arrest, Diane managed to get herself pregnant yet again, most likely to gain sympathy with the jury, although the reason she gave publicly was just as sick. She said she wanted to replace the kids that she'd lost. Oh, who was the father? Well, Diane herself probably doesn't even know. He was just some guy she ran into on her mail route because she was a mail carrier. She gave birth to a baby girl in prison, and thank God that child was adopted by another family soon after. So how could a woman who had given birth five times be so willing to kill three of her children? Because she wanted a man more than she wanted her kids. So back in 83, Diane was a divorced 27-year-old mail carrier in Arizona. According to her diary, she was dating a man she was obsessed with, a guy named Robert. The secret agent named Rick, you heard her talk about to the parole board in 2010, that was a new character in Diane's rich fantasy life. Anyway, Robert was already married to a different woman, and he didn't want kids, and he didn't want to see her when she had the kids. Did she dump him and find another man that loved her and her children and, you know, didn't already have a wife? No, she didn't. Instead, she set out to get rid of the children so he would want her. Diane and Robert met at work in the post office in Arizona. Robert was married, as I said, but at first he and Diane were so obsessed with each other, they even got matching heart tattoos. Those were permanent, but Robert's lust for her was fading. He didn't want to be anyone's father, and he didn't even want to see Diane because she had kids. So when she and the kids moved to Oregon six weeks after the shootings, she thought he was going to leave his wife and join them there. He was just grateful that she was gone. In fact, police found letters that she sent to him begging him to come live with her, returned to her unopened. He said later he was getting worried that she might try and kill his wife so they could be together. A very valid concern because I'm about to tell you how far Diane would go to get back at people she held a grudge against. She was found guilty of Cheryl's murder and the two attempted murders in June of 1984, and she was sent to prison for life plus 50 years, but that's not quite the end of her story. Christy and Danny were adopted by the prosecutor, Fred Hughie, and that is the good news, the only good news. Well, except for the fact that Diane got arrested and she's still in prison. That is also good. But the bad news is that they lived only about an hour away from the prison where Diane was sentenced to spend her time, life plus 50. And only three years into her sentence, she managed to escape. Yeah, she scaled an eight-foot razor wire fence around the prison yard. Damn, girl. So was she headed for the Hughie house to take her revenge on the prosecutor and the daughter that put her away? Well, she was in the wind, and they were on high alert for 11 days. Finally, they managed to track her down. Guess where she was? Hiding out at the home of another inmate's husband. (laughs) Some women never learn. But the prison system wasn't about to give her a chance to get out again, especially not when her kids lived so close by. So they transferred her to a prison in Jersey, a more secure facility. And later she was moved again to a prison in California. And that's where she still is today. She's been up for and denied parole multiple times. And she's never admitted she was the one with the gun that night. And these days, in an ironic twist of fate, she spends her days making children-sized face masks for the kiddos at the children's hospital. Oh, and Christy... Her daughter got married and has children of her own now, and Danny has a successful career in computers. 
And as you might guess, neither of them has had any contact with their murderous mom. As for their biological father, Steve, well, he's more of a mystery. He may still be living in Arizona. It's not clear how much contact he has with them, if any. And as for Robert, the reason Diane did what she did, he worked things out with his wife. And as far as we can tell, they still live in Arizona, out of the public eye. And next on our list is Andrea Yates, a woman with a long list of mental illnesses that led to the murders of her five small kids. It was no mystery who drowned the five young kids. Their mother, Andrea Yates, called 911 and confessed. The only question was why? How could a mother do such a horrible thing to her own children? 20 years ago, on a Wednesday morning in June, Rusty Yates went to his office, leaving his five small kids alone at home, just as he did every day of the week. His wife was a former nurse, but these days his job as a systems engineer at Nassau in Houston, Texas, put food on the table for Andrea, seven-year-old Noah, five-year-old John, three-year-old Paul, two-year-old Luke, and the newest addition to their family, six-month-old Mary. Andrea hadn't been so eager to get pregnant with Mary. She even stopped sleeping with him for a while, worried about having another baby. But he wanted another one, so he convinced her she was a great mother and reminded her what their pastor always taught them. The right thing to do was to leave it up to nature. So she did. But a battle between good and evil for the souls of her children had been playing out in her mind for years. She believed Satan had possessed her soul, and now he was coming for her kids. But she had a plan. If she killed her children while they were still young and innocent, they would go to heaven and she would have defeated Satan. Usually, Andrea's mornings would be spent homeschooling the kids. Rusty insisted on it. But on the morning of June twentieth, two 2001, she had something else, something terrible to do that day. Andrea laid out breakfast for her five little ones, and as the others ate, one by one, she coaxed them into the family bathroom and drowned them in nine inches of cold bathtub water. But killing them wasn't as easy as she thought it would be. Her firstborn, seven-year-old Noah, realized what was happening and tried to run away. Andrea calmly told the police that she had to chase him when he realized he was the last to die. Strands of her hair were still clenched in his fist when police lifted him out of the tub. The body of his baby sister floated face down next to him. She'd placed the other three kids side by side on the bed and covered them with a blanket. When they were all gone, Andrea put the second part of her plan in motion. She turned herself in following a biblical prophecy she believed started with the death of her children and ended with her own execution for the murders. As she said to the prison psychiatrist, it was the seventh deadly sin. My children weren't religious. They stumbled because I was evil. The way I was raising them, they could never be saved. They were doomed to perish in the fires of hell. The death penalty was the only way she could guarantee her soul would be free from Satan so she could go to heaven and reunite with her kids. The first officers to come to the house after she killed the children testified that she looked unemotional, unkempt, and soaking wet, according to Time magazine. Why didn't she commit suicide if she was so intent on freeing her soul from Satan? She did, twice, but she was saved both times. She was a familiar inpatient at the psych ward in town. She'd also been diagnosed with recurrent postpartum psychosis and depression, a series of mental health issues that really makes you wonder why her husband thought it was a good idea to convince her to have yet another baby. 
Rusty and Andrea fell in love in 1989 when they were both 25. They were married in 1993, and they told everyone who would listen that they were going to try and have as many babies as nature allowed. And their family grew quickly. Unfortunately, their living situation changed just as fast. They started off with a four-bedroom home in suburban Houston, but their pastor preached a strict form of faith that required the growing family to live as simply as possible. So, the two adults and four toddlers moved into a 38-foot camping trailer, which they bought from the same pastor, by the way. From there, they downsized still further into a bus, where Andrea was expected to keep house and homeschool the kids. Despite their close quarters, Rusty refused to see that his wife was struggling. But not everyone refused to acknowledge the truth. Her best friend could tell something was very wrong after Andrea gave birth for the fourth time in as many years. Three little ones was a handful, but Andrea was handling it. She was a loving mother and a good friend, but when her son Luke was born, she turned into a total zombie who stared blankly into space and couldn't finish sentences. Despite her obvious psychotic break, she was pregnant with her fifth child a month later. Three months after hearing the not-so-happy news, she overdosed on trazodone, the medication she was taking to treat her severe depression. That left her in a coma for more than a week. And one month after that near-death experience, she threatened to slash her own throat. But again, she was saved. That's when she was prescribed the antipsychotic medication haloperidol, which seemed to help stabilize her. She stayed on the meds for 18 months until a new doctor took her off of them. Two weeks later, she murdered all five of her kids. According to Time magazine, Rusty said the two of them had always planned on having a big family, but demons took a hold of his wife. The Bible says the devil prowls around looking for someone to devour. I look at Andrea, and I think that Andrea was weak. Think about a field of deer, and there's one limping around, and that's kind of the way I see it. Andrea was weak, and he attacked her. The truth is, postpartum depression is fairly common. One in ten women may feel disconnected from their babies, worried that they'll hurt their babies, or feel guilty about not being a good mom, according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. But Andrea also suffered from something far worse and much more rare. Postpartum psychosis affects only one-tenth of one percent of new mothers, according to Mental Health America. Moms who have it suffer from delusions, paranoia, and hallucinations, every single one of which Andrea had. In a jailhouse interview, she told an expert she didn't think what she did was wrong because if she hadn't killed them, they would be tormented by Satan. She went on to say, It was a bad choice. I shouldn't have done it. There was distress, but I still felt I had to do it. Now, that man went on to convince the jury in her 2002 trial that she was not insane. The insanity defense in Texas is extremely strict without a lot of wiggle room. Even though Andrea had many documented psychotic breaks before the murders, she would have had to prove to a jury that she didn't know what she was doing was wrong when she killed them. Ironically, her husband stood by her. He even thought she was going to get off because she was so clearly insane when she killed their kids. I say ironically because this is the same man who convinced her to continue having kids even though she was obviously mentally unwell and she told him she was concerned about being pregnant again. Frankly, his own mental health should have been evaluated because according to some reports, he was looking forward to having more children with her when she was released. 
Obviously, that was never going to happen. In 2002, the expert forensic psychiatrist that interviewed her in prison told the jury that not only did he not think Andrea was insane, but he also said she got the idea to drown the kids and claim insanity from an episode of Law & Order. It only took four hours for the jury to find her guilty, but in yet another ironic twist, she got life in prison instead of the death penalty. Since it was clear his wife wasn't going to be able to give him any more children, Rusty filed for divorce in 2004. The terms were that she would get the right to be buried next to her their children, $7,000 in cash, plus her share of the retirement benefits from his job at NASA, and a nursing chair, which is incredibly creepy. I even Googled what a nursing chair was just because I couldn't believe it was what you think it is. But it is. It's a chair for moms to nurse in. That's what she wanted. The woman belonged in a facility, and her lawyers thought so too. In 2006, they managed to get her in front of a new jury after that law and order comment came back to bite the prosecution. As it turned out, no such episode existed, although it probably does now. And she was granted a new trial because of it. What was the verdict? Here's a glimpse into the jury's mindset with this quote from the foreman. She needs help. I think she's worse than she was before. I think she'll probably need treatment for the rest of her life. They sent her to a state-run mental health facility along with this message to the general public. Quote, don't let this happen again. Do what you've got to do with the legislation, with the insurance companies. Don't let this happen again. According to ABC 13, these days she spends her time watching old home videos and making cards and aprons to raise money for the Yates Children Memorial Fund. As for her former husband, Rusty married again to a woman he met in church, naturally, but their love didn't last and they got divorced, but not before she gave him one more child, a boy. And that's your recap of Three Murderous Moms. Thanks so much for spending some time with us today. If you like getting all the crime in half the time, it would mean so much to us if you'd take the time to subscribe and leave this show a five-star review. Oh, and if you can, give your not-murdery mom an extra big hug today. See you next time.